Java programs run in a very different environment than they did 10 years ago. Modern infrastructure often runs on containers sitting in a Kubernetes cluster. The optimal configuration for a Java program in that context is different than it was for an environment dominated by virtual machines and bare metal. When you are co-scheduling your services with each other, those services could be fighting for resources. You may want to optimize them with more ahead-of-time compilation. Quarkus is a system for accelerating Java performance through the use of Graal VM. In a previous show, we explored the basics of Graal VM. In today's show, Guillaume Smet and Emmanuel Bernard join the show to describe an application of Graal VM, which is the acceleration of Java. Guillaume and Emmanuel are engineers at Red Hat, and they're working on changes to the Java ecosystem that are informed by the cloud and the rise of Kubernetes. Graal VM and Quarkus are fairly complex topics, but they seem very futuristic and they seem relevant. So I hope you get something out of this episode, even if it's a bit hard to understand on a technical level. If you are deeply familiar with Java, I think you will get a lot out of it. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software, it's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low code or no code projects, or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. Guillaume and Emmanuel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Hello, thanks for having us. We have done a show in the past about Graal VM, and I want to spend most of the time assuming that people have some sense of what Graal VM is, because if they don't, they can listen back to that last episode. But in case they don't want to do that, give people a brief overview. What is Graal VM? Basically, Graal VM, simplify a bit, it allows you to create native executable from your Java application, and it also supports an, a few other languages, such as Ruby or JavaScript. But if we focus on Java, the idea is to take your Java application, transform it into a native executable. And the good thing with GraalVM is that the compiler is written in Java, so it's quite easy to debug. Well, easy is Maybe not the exact term, but at least it's, it's easier than with uh, GDK. Yeah, so you end up with very minimal executable. And it also has the ability to start faster than the um, traditional GDK. So, yeah, it's, it's quite impressive when it's used Quarkus because you can start your Java application in a few milliseconds and... That's a game changer. Yeah. So if you 
you know, if you take a step back, if you look at how Go applications are actually compiled and how they work, Go is a garbage collected language and they compile the application into a native executable that you run on the, the target platform. And that's essentially what GraalVM provides to the Java universe uh, with caveats, but that's what it provides to the Java universe. And I think I forgot the actual, you know, details of the interview you had with Thomas, but I'm pretty sure he probably mentioned that as some sort of a target. Most of that interview was talking about GraalVM as a a polyglot language platform, meaning that many different languages could execute on top of this single virtual machine. Today's show is going to be mostly about how Java executes on top of that virtual machine. Is Java some kind of special case in terms of how it runs on GraalVM? Uh, you know, it, it is a good question, and I'm not 100% sure. I know in, in their mission, they definitely want Java to be kind of yet another language in the sense that the way they will support Java 8 and Java 9 and, you know, the futures of Java would just be just like as if it was somewhat of a different language. That, that's what I understood from them. Yeah, that's a good question whether Java is in some sort of a, you know, really first-class citizen at the implementation details. Who is using GraalVM today and how are they using it? Uh, <laughs> another question I'll have to say. I'm not sure. But as you said, you know, for a while, GraalVM really pushed this notion of polyglot and people looking after pretty high performance for, you know, JavaScript language, I think is another key language that they, they have. They were looking at that because they were benefiting from a lot of the, the Java virtual machine technology to really run their language in a, in a much more efficient way. When we saw GraalVM, we were really interested in the pure Java aspect. To some extent, the, the polyglot aspect is not really core to, our, to the, the fact that it's really useful for, for us. And what we saw about it was the capacity, because you pre-compile the application, the, as Guillaume was saying, the capacity to really start the application like in a, you know, in a few milliseconds, but also to minimize the memory usage. You know, if people remember Java, its birth is from the, you know, 90s. And at the time, the idea was to really optimize, take one big machine, one big process that would actually run as many requests per second as possible. Okay. So they made some trade-off. They really got very good throughput, but they made some trade-off as far as, you know, consuming a bit more CPU and consuming a more memory for that that throughput and it, it wasn't a problem at the at the time memory was cheap well it's all relative it's 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 funny how you really change the optimization over time we can come back to that later but when we look at it today and in the the universe of uh, of microservices the way you scale is not so much by saying i'm going to get a beefier process or a bigger machine it's more i'm going to deploy my application a second time or a third time or a tenth time right so you your unit of, of deployment has to be very compact to be to consume as less resource as possible and some sort of orchestrator uh, of course, nowadays, uh, a lot of people are uh, replatforming on Kubernetes. So in this case, uh, a container would be your unit of work and your application would be deployed as several instances, you know, into different containers. And because of that, the, the fact that Java was a bit heavy on the memory usage led to Java being a bit as, uh, well, quite at a, at a disadvantage in, in this replatforming. And what GraalVM provides by changing the way 
you know, in a normal virtual machine, a Java virtual machine, the Java is interpreted and then we see the hot path and that hot path is actually compiled dynamically. To do that, the JVM has to keep a lot of information around class metadata, you know, who is the superclass of who, what method has been, you know, uh, overloaded, you know, which part of the method is used a lot versus not a lot. And all of that information is necessary for the just-in-time compiler to do its job and do the best compilation possible uh, at the time, right? And change over time. But that cost is pretty heavy in a, in a microservice where you tend to have less code, more focused. And, and sometimes, you know, that microservice is not very, not too focused on having data. Maybe it's a rest endpoint doing things. And in that model, the, the size of the data you, you dedicate to your application that contains your object is very small compared to the metadata, we, we call it the meta space in Java, that is uh, containing all of the information about the classes themselves. And what GraalVM provides is, is essentially getting rid of the whole just-in-time compiler and all of the metadata associated with it by pre-compiling everything at build time, just like a Go application. So if I understand correctly, what you're doing with Quarkus is you're looking at people deploying Java applications to Kubernetes, and you're saying the memory footprint of these Java applications needs to be lower. And the way that we're going to get it down is by being a little bit more aggressive with our pre-compilation and lowering the memory footprint of essentially the, the runtime execution, like hot path detection and, and memory retention stuff. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, that's a good, uh, good good explanation. So we are from Red Hat. I don't know if we if we said that, but uh, so Red Hat is on a on a journey to really you know accelerate the deployment of Kubernetes via our, you know our distribution OpenShift. So we do believe in that model, and then we have also a massive investment in our Java middleware. So we've been trying to we you know go into a cloud native journey of our java middleware and of course make it run really you know as much as good as possible on on kubernetes and that memory usage was really a bit blocker and we've been working with our you know open jdk so the normal jvm side of things the you know red hat has you know quite a few engineers on that to try and find the the big reason for you know java being heavier than you know its competition in that kind of space. And what we found is that by the nature of Java being very dynamic, being able to load classes at runtime and and a lot of in- interesting things like that, which gives a lot of power to Java, they had to keep a lot of metadata, as, as, as you were describing. And also the Java middleware itself sort of abused the, the fact that Java was extremely dynamic. So Every time you start your application, a framework will look at all of your classes, try and find the one it's interested in, and so on and so on. So that that leads to a lot of operations that happen at runtime and a lot of memory consumed to to do that job. So when we saw this, so GraalVM has essentially, it's called ahead-of-time compilation. So when we saw that model, we realized, okay, that's... That could be the game changer we've been looking for. Instead of going through incremental improvements on the memory usage, really go to the, like, uh, how do you call that, a, a chasm, I guess, at least for the Java ecosystem. Making sense? Yeah. So so I guess I, I didn't remember this about Graal VM. It, it does more ahead-of-time compilation than just-in-time compilation? 
Yeah, they do. So that's the funny part, right? So when you think about GraalVM being able to run JavaScript, you're thinking, well, they do just-in-time compilation and things like that, which, which is true. But in the case of Java, there really there is no just-in-time compiler. They literally compile everything at build time. That's why they can get rid of all the, the whole just-in-time compiler, so that's much less code to bundle, but also it lets them limit the, the metadata that is necessary to, for the just-in-time compiler to do, to do its job. They are assuming something about the Java application that is somewhat uncommon to, to a Java developer. They assume a closed-world assumption. So they assume that at build time, they, all of the code paths that will ever be used is known. So they do static code analysis and do dead code elimination to get rid of all of the you know unnecessary code and methods. That's why you also gain in uh, in memory. It has a drawback because, as I was saying, a lot of frameworks in the Java ecosystem are built with this notion of reflection, being able to load classes dynamically, and so on. So there is. What, what we saw when we saw GraalVM, we saw okay, that that's great, but the JVM itself cannot really solve the problem. The ecosystem also has to join the game, and Quarkus is really about making frameworks move to this real-time closed-world assumption universe. Frameworks. So explain in more detail what the problems with frameworks are. So I'm thinking Spring Framework, for example. Like Spring Framework, if I want to run a Spring Framework application on top of Kubernetes, are there some kind of issues with doing that today? Yes. Well, you know, it depends how much memory you're ready to to pay for, right? Uh, what, what's the density of the application uh, you want to have on your say, cloud provider or, you know, Kubernetes deployment or whatever. Because what a framework does, and by, by the way, that's not unique to, to Spring. App servers have the same, same models. You know, Hibernate, which is the object relational mapper, also use the same model. When you think about it, what a framework does, it, it will pass some configuration file. So it has to read an XML file or some other format to read what you ask it, it to do, right? Then it does... What, what I described, this notion of class pass scanning to read the um, uh, metadata, the annotations, uh, that, that's what they call in Java, uh, around your code. Hey, this class is actually a class to be persisted, so I need to be aware of that. Uh, and then for those classes, these frameworks will want to do reflection to be able to dynamically invoke invoke those methods. Uh, for example, you will want to inject you know, an object into, into another object, and this will be done dynamically. So you do that, then you build your internal model, which is the runtime model. So in the case of an object relational mapper, that would be generating the SQL queries necessary. And finally, the framework starts. So all of that work, except the very last part of finally the framework is ready to answer your request. When you think about it in a closed world assumption, you can move them from startup time, which is what the entire Java ecosystem had been you know, focused on until now, and you can shift that to build time and not have to do that at all at runtime. So you're faster and you consume way less memory because the uh, the amount of code that is actually reading the configuration file and doing the reflection and preparing the framework to be ready and optimized is actually pretty massive. So we're talking about a lot of classes that don't have to be loaded at runtime, which means means smaller memory usage. Just to remind, we covered this in, in the previous Graal VM episode, I believe, but just in case people have forgotten that, 
explain in a little more detail, why is the memory footprint going to be lower? Use the spring framework example, you know, talk about why this situation that you're describing with all this configuration and reflection stuff being in memory, why is this so problematic and, and how does Graal VM reduce that memory footprint? Maybe let's take an example. So we made a few modifications to Hibernate Validator to fit into uh, Quarkus and how we wanted to build uh, the Quarkus framework. Hibernate Validator, that's like a, an ORM validation system? No. Yeah, so it's more of an object validation system. So the idea is you put annotations on your objects, on your bins, and you say, okay, so this property must not be null, this property must be a valid SKU, SKU or whatever, and you add your annotations on your classes. And Hibernate Validator task is to check that the instance validates the constraints you put on your object. So when we... Initialize Hibernate Validator. We have to gather all this metadata. We have to check for the annotations. We have to check for uh, the classes. We have to initialize the constraint validators and so on. And this takes a lot of time. So the idea was to move all this to build time. So when you compile your application, we are gathering this information and we are re-initializing a number of objects. The, the nice thing about that is that a large part of the, the Hibernate Validator code is designed to gather this information and build the meta model. If you have built the meta model before, if you have built it at, at build time, then all these classes can just be removed from the image because you won't need to use them. So in the end, you end up with uh, far less classes in your image and you end up with less memory consumption in the metaspace because you don't have to have all these classes initialized. So this is for one library, but imagine that we do that for all the libraries of the framework you end up with all this. Typically, uh, Emmanuel uh, gave the example of the um, XML file. So if you uh, take Hibernate ORM, so our object relational um, mapper, we have it parsing an, an XML file. For this, you need JXB, you need Xalan, you need Terces. This is a massive amount of code. And this is a massive amount of potential metadata that you will keep during all the life of your application. So when you move that parsing at build time, and you can do that because you are in a closed world assumption, you end up with all these classes gone from the native image. So you have far less memory consumed by, the, by all these classes. So this is one part of the gain we have with GraalVM, and it's one of the interesting parts of GraalVM. But keep in mind that uh, some of the work we do, we also do it uh, in a GDK env environment. So we, are, we support GraalVM, and we 
take the better of it, but we also have uh, some gain in a GDK environment. So even using Quarkus with a standard GDK, you will see that we have far less memory consumed because we moved quite a lot of work at build time. Yeah, to us, the, the metrics that does matter, so we're assuming people are moving to many more deployment units. Let's call it the microservice pattern just to, for simplification, but it could be functions could be, you know, not quite microservice universe. But what's important is the number of requests per second per megabyte you're consuming, because the modern way to scale up your application is really to say, I want to, I want to have an auto scaler that will listen to some metrics and decide to deploy a second or third or a fourth instance of my application. Uh, dynamically and also scale down as as necessary, right? So the fact that you can shave memory, especially the initial memory for initialization of the of the frameworks that won't be used anymore after, is is going to be very useful to re really get get a, a massive advantage in numbers of requests per second per megabyte, uh, you know, of your application on a given platform. What do you need to build to make this a reality, this accelerated, or I guess I should say lower memory footprint Java implementation? Okay, so let's do it in two parts. Let me give you a little bit of the limitations of running Java on GraalVM, and I'll probably I'll let Guillaume explain what, what we call the an extension, uh, which is how Quarkus make a framework that we use, uh, that we know, and, and shift its work as much as possible at build time. So GraalVM, as we said, is compiling everything at build time. So it's assuming all of the code of the application is available. If you do that, you cannot do arbitrary reflection or arbitrary scanning because you will have eliminated a lot of code that the, the compiler believes you're not using. If you can do reflection anywhere, it means any piece of code is potentially accessible. Therefore, you cannot do the dead code elimination and all of the good uh, and positive aspect of GraalVM are out the window. So you can still do reflection and that's a core aspect of uh, the, the Java platform, but you have to list manually the classes you need to do reflection on. Um, they, they have toolings to, to, to try and help there, uh, but I won't go too much into, into that details, that, that amount of detail. It, it can be very tedious, though, to make sure you've exercised all of the areas where you need to do reflection, list those classes, all the fields, and and make that happen. Same for you know Java is a very is is the Java ecosystem loves this notion of proxy, which are classes that are dynamically generated. Again, you need to list them manually to provide the information to GraalVM, and with the code that you have plus the list of reflections. For reflection you want to do on specific classes, then GraalVM will go and compile your, your whole application. The problem, so that, that's all good when you do a hello world or a, a very, very pure JDK centric application. But when you start using framework like Spring or the whole Java e ecosystem, every framework using annotations, essentially, you will have to give to that framework the, well, that, that framework will need to do reflection. So you as a user will have to list, uh, give that information to the framework. And that's a lot of work. That's somewhat impractical, really. There come, and then comes Quarkus. The idea with our extension system is that for each library for which we need some GraalVM configuration or something like that, the extension will take care of that for you. So 
for instance, in the case of, um, I don't know, um, Hibernate Validator, let's take this example again, each bin you will validate, uh, you will need reflection on that. And you don't want to write GraalVM configuration fi file for that. So we do that for you. So that's one part of the extension system. And the reason we can do that is that each framework semantically knows which class it needs to apply reflection on because you as a user have naturally put some sort of metadata on it. Uh, in the case of Hibernate Validator, it's the constraints. You say, hey, I don't, I want that string to always be an email. So we detect the add email annotation. Therefore, we know we will do reflection on that. So the frameworks have the semantic knowledge of which class you as a user want to do reflection on. So you as a user don't have to provide that. Uh, it's just a framework that will interact with the extension and then provide that information to GraalVM. Yeah, and another part of our uh, extension framework is that at build time, we will scan the annotations used by the framework. For instance, if you have your JAX-RS resources, so your REST services, you will have annotations on these methods. And so by scanning the annotations at build time, we can get all the, the list of all the methods we will use as REST resources. We can generate code to initialize things eagerly at build time. And that's really what we do in extensions. One big part is let's do whatever we can do at build time in the extension framework. And then we will generate code that will be executed later. And so in some cases, with your extension, what you do is I scan my annotations, I generate some bytecode, and when I will start my application, I won't have to scan the annotations again. I will just execute the bytecode, and it's far faster, and you don't need to scan all your class paths at, at runtime. And so the, and the second part is, with all this knowledge, we can simplify the configuration of GraalVM because, yeah, we know that uh, this REST service will serialize uh, this object to JSON. So we know we will use reflection and we will declare it to uh, GraalVM and say, oh, we will register this uh, object for reflection because uh, it will be serialized uh, as a JSON at, at some point. So it's really... I think there are two components really in our extension system. Move whatever we can at build time and simplify the configuration of GraalVM if you are using GraalVM. Yeah, so if you look at it from a user, the goal of Quarkus is to take the programming model they know, uh, whether it be the Java ecosystem was, uh, I'm sorry, we're, we're pushing a lot of uh, acronyms here for people unfamiliar with Java, but JAXRS or the REST, you know, the REST way of doing things, uh, whether it be the spring annotations, whether it be the way you persist entities. And we make that run as they're used to in a normal, in a quote unquote normal Java ecosystem. But we do the hard work of making sure GraalVM has the right set of information to properly compile the application. Quarkus makes my application run faster, not just because of GraalVM, but, but because of the, is it called the Hotspot compiler? Is that what it is? The, the Hotspot compiler is what is inside the normal JVM. 
so Hotspot is really the just-in-time compiler I was I was describing. It's actually yeah. Well, that, that's a bit of a simplification, but that, that, that's it. And GraalVM comes with essentially an alternative version of that, except instead of using a just-in-time compiler, so compiling your code while you run it, it actually does it at real time. So, so that's the small clarification. Uh, the other clarification is a code that is running on GraalVM might be actually a bit slower than a code running on Hotspot because it doesn't necessarily have the just-in-time capability to adjust itself as it sees how the code is actually used. Okay, So technically, your request per second, the pure request per second will be lower uh, on GraalVM than it is on uh, the Java Hotspot. Uh, but you can definitely compensate that by the, by the fact that you are consuming way less memory. So assuming your application is, is uh, stateless, then deploying a second or a third instance will more than compensate uh, on that. So what Quarkus offers is really a way for you to decide whether you want to run in the normal JVM universe or in the ahead-of-time GraalVM universe. And there are pros and cons for those. If you're very... Uh, focused about uh, application density, then uh, the GraalVM aspect will be interesting. On the other hand, if your application is very memory heavy or you're very focused on the maximum throughput for, for one instance, then Hotspot will definitely be a, a better case for you. But, but Quarkus abstracts that. The other advantage that Quarkus has is essentially for the same amount of memory that uh, you know another cloud-native Java-based platform would use. We run more requests per second because having less of this initial memory overhead, we literally have more memory for the application itself and for each of the requests and each of the requests per second. And our middleware has been optimized to not have any bottleneck or you know, as less bottleneck as possible for, for you know, many years now. So we're you know, very confident about that, that kind of limitation. I understand at this point that Quarkus is going to reduce my memory footprint. Is it also going to make my programs run faster? So the idea is really about improving the startup time. So this is the first component of it. Mm, um, that's true. We want your application to start fast. So the idea is to allow, in a microservice world, you will probably want to start multiple instances of your applications, and maybe you will have auto-scaling. And if you have auto-scaling, you will want the new instances to start almost instantly. And it's even more important when you are considering serverless and functions where you potentially scale to zero, so you might not have any instance of your application, and then you want to start, I don't know, tens of them at the same time to for a certain load. And so you will need your application to start instantly. So the, the idea of moving everything to build time is really to improve startup, startup time. So if you take the exact same components configured the, in the exact same way, they won't be faster on Quarkus because they are the exact same components configured in the exact same way. What will be different is that it will start far, far faster. And of course, we try to optimize Quarkus to run faster, but it's not magic. Uh, what is a bit magic is how we start faster because of the Quarkus infrastructure and how it is 
uh, designed. But I would argue you will develop faster, which is an interesting aspect. I'm sure CTOs look at their bills and the, the headcounts is, is, is a factor. Uh, and the reason you will develop faster is that uh, because Quarkus starts uh, much faster, as we've been describing in the, you know, uh, earlier in, the, in this podcast, we've been able to implement something that we call uh, live, live coding and precisely live reload, where you start Quarkus in a dev mode, and then you start typing code in your in your IDE, whatever that is, VS Code or IntelliJ or, or Eclipse. And then you go back to your brother, you refresh to see the updated page or the update, updated REST endpoint, and it, you see it right away. It looks like, okay, no big deal for somebody doing a PHP, for example, because that's how they've been running the their program and their development for forever. But for a Java developer, the usual life cycle is I'm coding, I'm deploying the application. So I'm packaging the application, I'm deploying the application, including uh, then I'm, you know, including starting it really. And then I can go and test, right? So there's a bit of a, not enough time for a coffee probably, but, you know, a, a quite a bit of a lag time. And with this live reload, you you really uh, gives an extremely short feedback loop between work, uh, between the code, the change you're making and the results you're, you're, you're having. Uh, so it's, um, it sounds tiny, but it makes so much of a difference in the, we call it developer joy, developer joy in marketing parlay uh, for us, but it, it is really a very good to see the mistake you make, go fix it and, and come back. The other aspect is the test suite. So we've seen more classic app Java applications, the backend application I'm, I'm speaking, having pretty long test suite because of the, the slowness of the framework to start and, and preparing all of the metadata we've been describing. With, with Quarkus, um, this is massively optimized. So you will see drastic benefit in the time it takes for, for a test suite, for your test suite to run. So these are key, I think also key important aspect, not just about the, you know, the pure cloud bill that you will get, but also, you know, how many people will be, or, or rather, let's say the same team, how many more microservices they will be able to handle just by having a faster feedback loop and, and get the job done faster. How do I begin to adopt Quarkus? So you can welcome to quarkus.io and then we have we have a way to generate your first project it's called code.quarkus.io where you see all of the technologies uh, we already support what is important is you i always joke and say that you already have uh, 5 years of experience in quarkus if you are in the java ecosystem because when you think about it, the application that runs, the, the piece of code that is run at runtime is not Quarkus code. This is the REST server, uh, in, in our case, JAXRS, or the uh, relational map, object relational mapper, in our case, Hibernate ORM. So these are mature technologies and also APIs you already know. So to get started with Quarkus, you just the fact that you already know the the Java backend ecosystem makes you, well, you know already 90% of what you really need. Um, for, for people that are a bit less familiar with the Java E ecosystem and more familiar with the pure Spring ecosystem, we have uh, what we call a Spring Compatibility API layer, which lets you have your Spring annotations and they will be transformed at real time and run on, on Quarkus at, uh, at runtime. Let's take a step back. So 
your perspective is that Quarkus is designed for a world of new application structures. Can we talk a little bit more about how you see application development changing and why Quarkus is a worthwhile project in that environment? So I got two theories. The first one is people have less time to work on a given application. The, you know, the pressure to get the business innovation out as fast as possible is, is higher than ever. And the competitiveness here has just increased. You know, the, the time you take to write your application, and it, it can be as long as, you know, knowing this new framework to how long it takes to deploy and run your test suite and so on is definitely shrinking. So, you need to get down. That, that's the key important aspect. So, so and anything you make somewhat simpler for the developer is going to be a huge gain down the road. People don't have time to explore the technology and look at it for days and days. They probably do a, a sneak peek of one hour if they like it, another half a day if they like it, they'll start to give it a try on a semi, semi-real project. Uh, so that, that's one aspect. The other aspect to me is because we're in a world of automation and the notion of deployment that used to be a fairly complex process where everyone was sweating and making sure things were, you know, triple checked before you were deploying, it's somewhat fading away. And people are embracing those, what I call dynamic orchestration platforms. I do have Kubernetes in mind, but, you know, you could think of the cloud provider as another one of those. And my theory that because you have that, you can do microservices, meaning you can split your application into smaller bits because you can deploy them without too much cost because all of the maintenance and making sure the app stays up is somewhat handled by by the platform. Okay, so instead of mutualizing this cost into one monolith, you can split your stuff into microservices. And the reason you do microservices to me, because it's still costly, right? You you're this each microservice is simpler, but then the communication between microservices makes uh, the entire system uh, more complex. So why do we pay that cost? To me, we we do pay that cost to be more agile and really address the business needs. So you will probably do less features from a throughput point of view, but you will be able to deliver the right feature much faster. And if at some point in one area of your application, you decide that the technology you've chosen is definitely not the right one, you'll be able to scrap entirely the code and even potentially the database system underneath and for example, decide to go from a relational database to an in-memory database and rewrite entirely the code. And that is manageable because it's a very well-known piece of your application. And it's not like a, you know, a big, gigantic things with lots of interaction with other areas. How did you guys get involved in this project? What were you doing beforehand and, and what caused you to start working on Quarkus? So I'll start because I was uh, a tiny bit earlier than than Gio <laughs> into that. So I'm the co-founder of Quarkus, and we decided to go for Quarkus from, well, in some ways, we've, we've started Quarkus many, many years ago with, uh, as I was descri- describing, the, the need to optimize our middleware into much more memory-constrained environment that the dynamic orchestration platform were essentially offering to the world. Okay, so we've been optimizing our frameworks and, as I was saying, interacting with our JDK team to try and find incremental improvements in that area. When we saw GraalVM, we saw the, the potential and we saw that because we 
we were somewhat knowledgeable with enough piece of the, the middleware ecosystem, we could try and move that ecosystem from startup time to, to build time. We really we did something a bit weird for for Red Hat. Red Hat usually is open from the get go, and we just put it out there on GitHub or wherever, and then people try. In this case, we we started with uh, in somewhat of a secret, like a stealth mode, even within the company, and we got you know <laughs> got a lot of pushback for that uh, because that that was definitely not the usual way of doing things. But we started with a very small team and say, okay, let's take those two or three or four technologies and Let's try and make sure this build time stuff works and that we can really shift the Java ecosystem to this new universe. We did that and we iterated three months after three months by increasing slowly the team size and then bringing other, you know, Red Hat middleware teams on board. Yeah, and that's when I joined. So I'm the Hibernate Validator project lead. And I joined Quark, the Quarkus team to improve the integration of Hibernate Validator and also make some changes in Hibernate Validator to be more integrated uh, into the Quarkus way. So that's how I joined and I started working on a lot of other areas, fixing bugs, writing documentation and whatever. And that's how I got involved in, in the project. And just take a step back. So I'm on Red Hat Middleware. I'm the chief architect for, for data. So I'm usually around the data related projects. So the persistence framework, the data grid, uh, which is a distributed key value store, uh, change data capture. And there is a project called Dibisium and so on. But when we saw that potential into shifting the Java ecosystem, it was sort of a all hands on deck as far as let's give it a try and let's make sure everybody in the organization you know see it as with the potential it has and it required to break the silos we we tend to have within organization and say okay let's take the the key people across areas and, and do a concerted effort because not only does it make user java application much smaller in memory usage and so on but it's also going to be a very key aspect of red hat middleware uh, which is pr uh, primarily written in in java so it's, it's a big win for us as Red Hat offering those middleware as services, you know, just like crowd providers, but also, you know, it's kind of for free that actual end user can also write the application with the same technology. What's the hardest engineering problem that you're working on within the Quarkus project right now? By the way, the hardest problem is not engineering, is making the right choice of where we do invest. But back to your question, Guillaume, do you want to discuss the whole reactive rework that we're doing maybe? or Yeah. So right now we are working on a totally new HTTP layer based fully on Vertex and Netty. So at the beginning of Quarkus, we integrated um, a component called Undertow, which is an implementation of Servlet. And it was the basis for all our HTTP layer. The issue with that is that we have, in Quarkus, we have integrated imperative way of coding and also the reactive way of coding. And having both in parallel, you and having two different implementations of things, you couldn't really share resources. And that's something we 
are working on in Quarkus, trying to use as less resources as possible. So the idea of, the, of this HTTP layer rewrite is to put everything on Vertex and base everything on Vertex and have only one event loop dealing with everything. It's also an improvement in uh, CPU usage. It lowers the number of context switches we have. So it's really something that we wanted to do for quite a long time. The thing is that it's really, well, it's a very low level layer. So when you change that entirely, it comes with a lot of challenges. And you do that while a lot of other people are working on other part of the code. So it's not an easy thing. And you also have to redesign some key part of the code. So while working on this new HTTP layer, we also have to rework all our security layer. So it's really a big engineering challenge and also a big organizational challenge because yeah, we have to make progress while people are working on very low level layer. So yeah, that's what keeps us busy right now. We have released um, the first step of uh, this journey. We have a few other releases uh, coming with uh, improvement of top of, on top of that. But yeah, the idea is really to be able to unify uh, everything with um, uh, using uh, by using a vertex and uh, having reactive at the core of uh, Quarkus. The reason we want just one, essentially one pipeline to process all requests, whether you end up doing the blocking way uh, from a programmatic point of view or the non-blocking way, is because, it, it, again, it's about resources. It's about memory. Every extra class we bring to the Quarkus platform to do something means a bit more memory used that we could avoid and that we could be better used to serve the request per seconds the user is looking after, right? And remember, microservices, I mean, splitting your application into many units of deployments means uh, every extra bit you save counts. Uh, so, so that's an important aspect for us to try and say, let's not try and have two frameworks to do the same thing in slightly different way, but try to unify that. Not, it's, it's not for the engineering beauty of things. The reactive aspect, we wanted reactive to be at the core, uh, and it's again a resource consumption aspect with, with a non-blocking model. You can definitely save from a memory usage point of view a number of instances you do require to serve your, your request. Request uh, It's heavily used in you know lots of uh, heavy data ingestion needs. Any IoT-related platform would definitely want to have a very low level, a very low consuming you know endpoint so, so that's an important aspect but reactive it comes with its challenges from a programmatic point of view so a user will be able to stay blocking if it's just easier for him or her and if they just can are okay to pay the the extra resource cost have you all seen any other cool projects within the graal vm ecosystem that stand out for us, fundamentally, this is a new era for Java. There were some pretty heavy eras, uh, but not a lot of them in the Java ecosystem because it's you know fundamentally a, a fairly stable ecosystem. But we've seen quite a few turn at some point that really changed the landscape into how you write an application. So annotations was one. We see this uh, shifting of the frameworks at build time. Uh, 
probably the biggest new era that uh, at least the Java backend has, has ever seen. So whether it be Quarkus in the end or something else, of course, we, <laughs> we do believe Quarkus will be the one, but this will be a change for forever. And there are two, well, there, there is Quarkus. Uh, another one is uh, Micronaut, which uh, came to the problem uh, slightly before, but also before GraalVM was something. So they, they also try and shift as much as possible at build time. What they didn't get from the get-go and, and don't have is really literally a bit of a dialogue between a framework. Well, the extension model that we describe is really a dialogue between the the framework that people use, whether it be you know the dependency injection framework or the REST endpoint framework or whatever, and and GraalVM to really provide it the right information, and also tr try and help. We, we didn't go too much into that details, but the notion of dead code elimination is very sensitive. Is if at some point the compiler is not quite sure whether your code is used or not, of course it will be uh, conservative and con keep you know all of the code, but because you are at the application level. You know, for example, that this application will never use, say, a second level cache. So you can help the dead code elimination by simplifying a little bit the code and making sure second level cache is not only disabled, but entirely removed from the code base. And then you, you know, you save again a, a little bit more memory. So yeah, Micronaut is also a, a cool framework in, uh, in that area. There is one whose name escapes me, which is around uh, writing command line uh, interface, so tools essentially, but in Java, which was very prohibitive in the past because starting the JVM was, well, first of all, you had to install the JVM plus your tool, and then starting the JVM is uh, like a two-second proposition, let's say, plus the memory usage. So if you want to write a very simple and very reactive uh, command line tool, that was just prohibitive. So there are some frameworks that are built around GraalVM to to improve that that ecosystem. Is it Picoli or something like that, Guillaume, yeah, do you remember? Pico CLI, yeah, PicoCLI. Yeah, PicoCLI. There you go. I was close. Uh, do, do you see any other? That I might have missed. No, I think these are the two most interesting projects uh, apart from Quarkus. By the way, I think on the GraalVM, so we're less versed in the GraalVM polyglot side, but I think people see a lot of interesting things with the R support for GraalVM. So, I, I, you know, this is not my my thing really, but I believe people really, you know, appreciate the the way GraalVM runs R, and they can even mix and match. A bit of R code doing some work, you know, extracting information and then you know using it in another part of their application, which is in plain Java. So that that's one aspect. When we say polyglot in GraalVM, it's not that not only that it runs more than one type of language, but it runs all of them in the same piece of code, and you can literally interact between one you know language piece and another language piece without interrupt cost. All right, last question. Imagine it is five years into the future. How will Quarkus have changed my life? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> Even uh, if it's in imperceptible ways. I'm trying to think five years in the future. We've we've seen um, overwhelmingly. We've seen like you know awesome feedback from the community, and people are absolutely interested into into learning about that. We knew we were onto something, but you never know how how much that is. And the memory consumption was absolutely massive, much bigger than we even anticipated. 
uh, at least at, at my level. I even had sysadmin, you know, traditional sysadmin come to me and say, you know, I love your stuff. I think I'll talk to my dev team to, so that they go and adopt it because I'm sick of those, you know, Java processes taking, taking so much uh, memory and so much time to start. So if anything, Quarkus would have changed, would have, you know, you know, we've, we've, some people have predicted the death of Java for quite a while, but I think it will definitely kick the, the next prediction for quite a few years with this new evolution. And to me, the other aspect is if we keep building the ecosystem properly and keep having this live reload model that will change the way people like new, new generation come at Java and how they write application will probably vastly change instead of being very, for example, test first centric, uh, because that was the smallest unit of work to really deploy part of your application and make it run, it would probably be much more, uh, you know, live reload centric where you code, you see the result right away. So you can even adjust the UI, you know, while you also update, uh, add a new field in your database and your object. That That is to me a game changer. There was actually a framework uh, called Play Framework, the, the V1, that is had really a very good user experience. And we've been uh, shamelessly, you know, stealing all of the good ideas they had at the time, but also improve on the memory usage. What we knew is that you can give people like a massive memory improvement, but if development experience is really hard or crap, they would just not adopt it, right? They don't have the time. So we also needed this awesome user experience as well as the memory advantage. So I guess, you know, I don't know. Let me do a a very stupid prediction. Because we save so much money on the cloud bill, maybe there'll be more people in you guys' team and you can achieve more. (laughs) I don't think that one will be true because the money will be be reused elsewhere, I'm sure. But that would be a good one. No, I hear these cloud providers pass on their savings to the customer. Oh, yeah, that that, that must be right. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, Guillaume, anything to add? Well, yeah, I want to add something about our community. So we have a very open community at Quarkus, a very inclusive one. So if you are interested in starting open source, uh, working on a new project, uh, be creative with new ideas, uh, you will be very welcome. We have more than 150 contributors now, and it's growing very fast. So... If you feel like joining, you'll be welcome. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been fun talking to you. Thank you very much. It was, uh, yeah, it was good, uh, good conversation. Mm-hmm.